Here in the Gospel of John, we come to one of the most wonderful sections dealing with worship in the Bible. It's a brief teaching from the lips of Jesus, but very deep and very rich. And I love this passage. I think about it often. One of the reasons I love it is because as brief as it is, as simple as it is, it is yet so extremely clear and profound. There are so many strange ideas about worship in the world. I don't know how much you've ever thought about it, but these ideas have taken mankind from every extreme to another. The extreme of every experience, really, of frustration and emptiness, to the extreme of tragic sacrifices that are made in an act of so-called worship to God, all the way down to just the simple act of attending church for all the wrong reasons. There is just so much confusion about worship in the world. For example, a man named Hideyoshi, a Japanese warlord who ruled over Japan in the late 1500s, commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto. It took, get this, 50,000 men five years to build. But the work had scarcely been completed when the earthquake of 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and completely wrecked the statue. In rage, Hideyoshi shot an arrow at the fallen colossus and began to shout, I put you here at great expense and you can't even look after your own temple. Great frustration. A missionary tells the story of a woman in India holding in her arms a weak, whining infant while at her side stood a beautiful, healthy child. The man of God saw her walk to the banks of the Ganges River and throw the robust youngster to the crocodiles as an offering, and then turn toward home again, still clutching the sickly child to her bosom. Tears were running down her cheeks when he stopped to question her concerning the shocking actions. However, she proudly replied in defense of her conduct, Oh, sir, we always give our gods the best. That is tragic. That is a tragic act of deception in the name of so-called worship of some god. And then there's the following true story that is from the life of Louis XIV of France. One Sunday, when he and his royal party arrived at church, no one was there except the Archbishop Fenelon, who was the court preacher. Surprised to see all the vacant seats, the king asked, Where is everybody? Why isn't anyone else present this morning? The minister answered, I announced that your majesty would not be here today because I wanted you to see who came to the service just to flatter you and who came to the service to really worship God. When they found out you weren't coming, nobody came. People come to church for all the wrong reasons. It's amazing. People come to church rather than to worship. They'll come to meet friends. Lonely man will come to find a beautiful woman because lots of women are in church. You find people come because they're in sales and they figure they can make sales contacts in church. Like the guy who had his kid out front years ago when he first started the church selling candy bars for the school she was going to. 
Of course, it made all the parents mad because they all had kids who were asked to sell candy bars as well, but none of them dared to use the church as a place to do it. People come to church for all kinds of strange reasons that are other than what church is to be all about, and that is to worship the true and living God. A man by the name of Stephen Charnock years ago said, we may truly be said to worship God even though we greatly lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship Him if we are lacking in sincerity. And that is so true. So many reasons people come to church there should be one main bottom line reason, and that is to worship your God. In our passage before us, Jesus is giving a teaching on the right way to worship God. He talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth, the one and only true God. I want to spend our time as we look at this, I want to really use it as a launching point and spend our time working through the Bible and see what we can find out as it relates to this. What we're going to discover is this, that the chief end of man is worship. That the ultimate priority of our life is to worship God. That the ultimate destiny that God has ordained for man is that man would know Him and that man in knowing Him and discovering Him would worship Him. And we're also going to discover that the ultimate solution to our problems comes when we truly worship God. Not when we come to God simply to get our problems fixed. But when we come to worship and adore Him for all that He is, we find as a byproduct that so many of the real needs in our life are satisfied in such a wonderful way. I love what John Blanchard said. You remember John who preached here the very first service we had in this church? He has well said that life ought not merely to contain acts of worship, but that life itself should be an ongoing act of worship. And that is really the truth. The ultimate end of our life should be that all that we do, all that we say, all of our praises should flow together to form one unit, one life that is a life of surrender and worship to God. Let's look at our text, shall we, at John chapter 4 and verse 20. And here Jesus, you know, is speaking to the woman at the well, a woman who obviously had a lot of problem in her life finding satisfaction went from one man to the next one husband to the next she had five husbands that that Jesus told her about and the man she was living with was not her husband she was an immoral woman she was an unsatisfied woman she was an empty woman with a very great need and to minister to her need and to bring her to salvation Jesus uses the language of worship and so he says to her in response to her question here, which was really, as I pointed out last time, a diversion. He responds in a very warm and wonderful way and uses the opportunity to minister to her as he brings her to salvation. In John 4.20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. They had set up their own temple there on Mount Gerizim, which was sort of a, a counter temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And they had a, a sort of a hybrid worship of Jehovah mingled with idol worship. 
And so she said, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews say in Jerusalem is the place one ought to worship. And what he does is he says, woman, the hour is coming and now in, is when where you worship is not the issue at all. But it's who you worship that is the issue and how you worship him. And so verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, there's three things I want to draw out here for our attention as we look at this and move around the Bible. First of all is the perception of God-centered worship. We need to have the right perception if we're to move in the right direction. Secondly, I want to talk about the priority of God-centered worship, and we'll see that in many places in the Bible. Then I want to talk about just briefly the practice of God-centered worship as it relates to spirit and truth, which is what, what we find here in verse 24. Let's talk about the perception of God-centered worship. You know, as you look around the world today, as you look around the body of Christ, you see that there are a lot of people who have the perception, and it is a wrong one, that worship is primarily for me. And there are a lot of contributing factors to that. I can give you three main ones. First of all, there is the whole influence of the Word of Faith ministry, if you could call it a ministry, the Word of Faith ministry. And all of the focus in there on health and wealth and prosperity really causes the believer to continuously focus on me. What is in it for me? And that has cultivated within the body of Christ through the mass influence of mass media, this widespread mindset that worship is all about me. Then, of course, there is the influence of pragmatism. And that is the whole mindset today that really doesn't care to examine whether or not it is right but does it work? Will it give me the desired end that I want? And that whole movement of pragmatism in the church, which has fostered the whole seeker-sensitive movement and all of that that's going on today, has led to shallow preaching in the pulpit, which has led to shallow living in the pew, which has led to shallow, shallow worship in the prayer closet, as well as in public. And then there is, of course, the widespread influence of psychology in the last decade or two in the church, really especially in the last decade where so many sermons are full of psychology rather than Bible in an effort to relate to the felt needs of the person in the pew. The sermons have become psychological. The seminaries have become trainers of psychologists rather than trainers of Bible men who can minister and effectively and accurately divide the word of truth. So all these things, psychology, pragmatism, and this whole meism of the Word of Faith movement, which is so popular, have fostered this idea that worship is for me. It is a what's in it for me attitude that we're dealing with today. And of course, that splashes over and spills off into people we know in our lives. And then we have that influence that we have to contend with. And it affects our perception about our worship of God. The bottom line is this, if you attend church primarily or seek God primarily for what you can get and what you can receive, if you come for the blessing, then you don't know the first thing about worship because worship is not all about that. 
A.W. Tozer has written an entire book on worship. It's a wonderful book, very penetrating, very piercing. And he has well said that whoever seeks God as a means toward desired ends will not find God. And then he adds this very piercing phrase. He says, God will not be used. God will not be used. He is not our genie where we come and utter the magic phrases as some teach us and boss him around and order him what to do. He is not one who will be used. He is not our servant. We are his servants. And so he says, whoever seeks God as a means toward desired ends will not find God. God will not be used. The perception that worship is primarily for me is a, is a wrong one. It is a sad one. It is a tragic one because it is the farthest thing from what worship is really all about. So what is the right perception? Well, the right perception is found in our passage, comes to us from the mouth of Jesus himself. And that is this worship is primarily for who? For God, primarily for God. In John 4, 23, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Worship is primarily for God. You begin to understand that as you look at the word worship, which comes to us from the Greek word proskuneo, which means to kiss toward, to bow down, to prostrate yourself. It was used of um, men and women in the old days among the Orientals and the Persians. They used the word to describe falling down on your face to pay homage to your king. It was that kind of an idea. And our modern English word worship comes actually from an old English word, which was the word worth-ship. Worth-ship. And that denotes the worthiness of an individual receiving special honor. I was reading today the writings of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was one of my favorite commentaries, great preacher who's gone to heaven. And he had a, a story to share that really spoke to me on this. He said, as we were leaving Beaumont, Texas, we saw a large sign along the highway calling upon people to acknowledge God. And it said this, go and worship God in the church of your choice. We pulled to a stop sign, pulled up to a stop sign and another car drew up alongside of us. We heard a child's voice as the child read the sign and said, Daddy, what does worship mean? The father in the next car replied, it means to go to church and listen to the preacher preach. That's what worship means. Barnhouse commented, he said, what could be a more horrible definition than that? He said, worship three or four hundred years ago was pronounced worship, and it means the acknowledgement of the worth that is in our God. He went on to say, worship in heaven is described in terms of God's angels and sons falling before him, saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. That is what worship is all about. Worship is for God. Worship is all about giving to God from your heart. And if you're going to talk about coming to church, worship is all about bringing a sacrifice with you. And that is the sacrifice of praise that comes from your lips out of your heart to the Lord and flows up to him. You see this in the Old Testament when God gave the instruction to Moses way back in the beginning when they'd come out of Egypt and they had set up the tent of meeting and then later they sent up the tabernacle. 
where they had the Ark of the Covenant and all, and God gave them the law. But right in the very beginning, God gave Moses instructions for worship. And he said this in Exodus 30 and verse 34, running through verse 36, the Lord said to Moses, I want you to take fragrant spices and I want you to make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. And I want you to grind, grind it to powder and place it in front of the testimony of the meeting where I will meet with you and it shall be most holy to you. So what they did is they put together this very costly incense and they burned it in the front of the tent of meeting where God met with them. And the idea was to create this picture of what worship is all about to God. And so as they lit the incense and it began to burn and the smoke began to rise up as it were toward heaven and the fragrance began to fill the air, it was so strong made from such costly different elements that literally the fragrance would sweep throughout all of the camp. And so here was this beautiful picture, not only to Moses, but all the people of the fragrance of worship, the beauty of worship, how God views our worship as it rises up to him. Worship is all about giving a wonderful fragrance, a wonderful gift to God. I love when Jesus went to dinner in Bethany in John 12, in verse 3. Why don't you just turn there, give you something to do. Just turn to the right to John 12, 3. Jesus came to dinner at Bethany with Martha and Lazarus and they had supper and then we read in verse 3 then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil Do you get the picture here's the son of God wondrous lovely kind gracious and here is this woman that understands who he is and absolutely adores him and she is a poor woman, and she goes and she gets this very costly oil of spikenard, and she comes in and she kneels at his feet, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and with the ointment, and the fragrance, it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. That is just a New Testament picture of what you had with Moses in the Old Testament with the fragrance of the incense rising up in front of the tent of meeting. You see it in the old, you see it in the new, that worship before God is viewed as a wonderful, wonderful, fragrant and beautiful thing. And it is something that he loves to receive from us. So we could say that worship is to be a warm expression of thanksgiving from our hearts to God. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is in Psalm 45, verse 1, where the psalmist says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I've been contemplating God. And now as I've been contemplating God and His goodness, my heart is beginning to overflow. And the word that you find in the Bible in the English overflowing is literally a word in the original that means boiling up and boiling over. But as the psalmist thought on God, his heart was warmed to the place of boiling over because he thought of his goodness. He thought of what God had done for him in his life. And the, the very natural next step in his relationship with God was as he contemplated all that God had done for him, was his heart began to warm as he began to understand how good God had been to him. 
all that God had done for him, where he had come from, what God had done, how God had worked. And his heart got warmer and warmer and warmer, began to boil over with thanksgiving and gratitude. And he finally says, my heart is overflowing, boiling over with a good theme. Jill Briscoe has shared of an encounter she had with Cory Ten Boom one time. And Cory Ten Boom was such a wonderful woman of God and woman of worship and woman of great humility. And she said, I love what Cory Ten Boom once taught me. She said, Jill... People thank me so much as they go around and speak and share and minister. People thank me so much. And it used to worry me because I didn't want to get a big head. So I began to collect all those compliments like flowers, like petals of flowers and like flowers, putting them together in a bouquet. Thank you. Thank you, I'd say. Thank you. Thank you. They'd give me another compliment. Thank you. And she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then I would collect them all together. And at the end of the day, I'd kneel down before my Lord Jesus. And I'd say, here you are, Jesus. They're all yours. And I love that. Thinking of what God has done for you. Having a heart of thanksgiving. A warm heart. A passionate heart for God. And coming and giving back to God that passion and that thanksgiving in your heart. And expressing it to Him. That's what worship is all about. That is the right perception of worship. It's a gift. When you come to church, do you come bearing a gift? Do you see yourself walking through the parking lot holding a gift, as it were, in your heart? Or do you come in going, I hope I get something tonight? It's been a rough week. I hope I get something tonight. It's time for the worship. Oh, God, touch me now. Oh, I just hope I get something now. And then you pass through the worship. Oh, God, let it be a good one. Help this poor preacher out. I don't mind you praying that anytime you want. But do you come like that? Or do you come wanting to bring your gift to God? Do you go to your prayer closet wanting to give back to God? You notice that Jesus opens up the Lord's Prayer and teaching us how to pray. And the very first thing that comes out that we are to pray is, Hallowed be thy name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To spend time reflecting on all the goodness God has shown to us and then to express it in worship and thanksgiving. That's the right perception of God-centered worship. Let's go to the next main thing, and that is the priority of God-centered worship. The priority of God-centered worship. And what I want you to see here, first of all, is that as you look at the Bible, you find, and as you study salvation, you know what you find out? You find out that what Jesus says right here in John chapter 4 and verse 23 is what salvation is all about. That is really a salvation statement. You find that worship, and here's the thought, worship is the ultimate purpose of salvation. I don't know that you perceived originally your salvation to be all about, maybe to escape the flames of hell. Personally, when I came to Christ, I didn't even believe in hell. It took God a long time to convince me hell was real, even after I had become a Christian. So, you know, you come with this mixed bag of understanding, but you come as the Holy Spirit draws you. I don't know what you came thinking about. But I have now come to realize that the reason I was drawn by the Spirit of God and the love of God to Christ, the reason I was saved, born again by the hand of God, was to become a worshiper. And that that's what it's all about. Oh yes, I'm to witness, I'm to be the light of the world. God is wanting to fill my life, but He saved me to make me a worshiper. You see, man in his lost state has turned away from what God created him for, and that is to worship God. Let me show you this. Turn in your Bible to Romans to chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 to verse 
20. Paul really outlines this in detail. When you consider that God made man to worship him, and then you read these words, you see how tragic is the fall of man. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal and power and Godhead. You see, the creation shouts of God. The Bible says that you can look up at the stars and that there isn't a nation, a language, or any kind of people in the world that cannot look up and see the testimony of God in the stars. And so, from the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The week before I gave my life to Jesus Christ and became born again, I sat all night long on the Colorado River, one of the most profound, clear nights I've ever seen in my life, sailing on LSD, staring at the stars and the full moon. And all I could think about was God. And there were people all around me, drunk and playing music and partying, and all I could think about was God. Because I had never quite been in a setting like that. And the message was so loud that it pierced through my drug-induced stupor. And long after, days after I left that place and was no longer on the drugs, the message was still shouting in my heart. And I knew. I told all my friends on the way home from the river. I said, you know, we have a cereal box over here, Kellogg's Rice Krispies or something, full of dope. But I'm telling you, when we get back, it's over. I'm going to give my life to God. And it was just something that the testimony was so loud and clear, and that's exactly what happened. And it was then that I read the Living Waters track. I, I was ready. My heart was prepared. I came to Christ. You see, it's so loud, there is no reason why a man would not be able to worship God. And it says, man then is without excuse. So verse 21, because they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I mean, just look at the idols of Egypt and you'll see that. And what is our Lord's response to all of that? Remember, we're talking about how worship is the ultimate purpose of salvation. What is Jesus Christ's response to all of that? You find it. I'll read it to you in Luke 19.10. Jesus said this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? Mankind. What did he lose? The bottom line is he lost worship with the living God who made him. What was Jesus seeking? Lost men who were willing to come back into a place of worshiping their Creator God if they were only invited and shown the way. That's it. And so we read in John 4.23, The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Did you notice that word seeking? Did you notice? I don't know if you have, but if you look through the Bible, you will find out that the only thing in the Bible 
where it actually says God is seeking. It actually says that, that God is seeking from us. The only thing that it actually phrases like that is this. Worship. God seeks worship from us. Could you turn in your Bible? You see this at the end of the Bible in Revelation in chapter 14 in verse 6. Could you turn there? I'll wait for you. Don't write anymore. Just turn. I'm just kidding. Quote about writing at the end, so I'll save it till then. Writing is a good thing for you writers. Revelation 14, 6. I get so blessed when I see you all taking notes, and I'm envious. I cannot read my own writing. So I can't take notes. It's not even possible. Anyway, Revelation 14, 6. You see, here we are at the end of the human race, the end of man's life on earth as he has known it. It's at the very end. It's in the great tribulation period. Man has rejected all the advances of God, the love of God and Jesus Christ. God has begun to punish man. And finally, God loves man so much that he actually sends angels flying through heaven proclaiming the gospel. That's how aggressive God gets with saving men. But I want you to notice the language they use to call men to salvation. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, to every tribe and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And what does it say? Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So I say again that when you want to contemplate salvation in the Bible, you begin to realize worship is the ultimate purpose of salvation. Let me take you to another thought. Worship is the ultimate focus of the Bible. It is. You look at the Bible, you can start in the beginning. Right in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And what you find with Adam and Eve is that they worship God. And when they started worshiping another, they fell. And they plunge the human race into sin and alienation from God. You find very shortly after that, Cain and Abel. Abel brings his sacrifice to God. It's accepted. Cain's is not. And Cain kills his brother over the matter of worship. You look at the patriarchs that God raised up, the great men of the Bible, and you see that when they walked with God, when they were obedient, that they were blessed. When they worshiped God obediently, they were blessed. And when they didn't, they were not blessed. You look at Israel. You see God deliver them from Egypt. You see Him lead them out through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you see that the spies go in the land, they come back, and the people fail to believe and worship God as their sovereign, omnipotent God, whom He had already revealed Himself to be. And as a result, God dooms them to wander in the wilderness in their unbelief and their lack of believing worship for 40 years. You see, Moses, as he stands at the rock the second time and the people are thirsty, and Moses publicly, the leader of the people, the leader of their worship, really at that time, he fails to honor God in obedient worship and consecrate Him in front of the people, basically steals the glory from God, and he does not get to go into the promised land. You see, worship is the ultimate focus all the way from the very beginning. When God gave His people the law at Sinai, worship is right there at the very beginning of it. I want to show you that. Turn in your Bible to Exodus, to chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus, chapter 20, 
verse 1. Right in the very beginning, as he's beginning to educate these people, they're slaves. They come out of Egypt. They had nothing. Basically knew nothing. And God begins to educate them. The first and most important thing is how they worship Him, how they approach Him. In Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, verse 2, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And then in verse 14 of chapter 34, I'll just read it. He says, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Go all the way out to the New Testament. See how consistent God is. Listen to the preaching of Jesus and what you hear is this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. He echoes the exact same thing. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. As you continue to move along through the Bible seeing that worship is the ultimate priority. You find, going back to Exodus and to the beginning of God instructing the people, putting together the tabernacle, the tabernacle was the center of their worship. One of the amazing things you find is the amount of coverage given to the preparation and the operation of the tabernacle, which had one main message, worshiping God. What you find in the Bible is 50, no less than 50 chapters devoted to the instructions concerning the tabernacle. Fifty chapters. Thirteen in Exodus, eighteen in Leviticus, thirteen in Numbers, two in Deuteronomy, and four in the book of Hebrews. Fifty chapters. Why? Because worship is the ultimate focus of the Bible. Even if you look at when they put the tabernacle together after God gave them all the instructions, and you look at how they geographically laid it out, what you find is even the geographical focus is that of the priority of worship. What you have is around the tabernacle there as they were camped out in the wilderness there, you had around the tabernacle the priests nearest to it. Then you had the Levites just out a little farther from them. Then north and south and east and west. You have all the tribes so that when they came out of their tents in the morning, when they retired to their tents in the evening, they were literally facing the tabernacle, where, of course, the glory of God dwelt as a bright and shining light and a glory cloud in the day and a shining bright fire at night. And what was the message? The message was this. The ultimate focus of your life is to worship God. That is the ultimate chief end and priority of your life. It is such a clear message as you move through the Bible. Their lives literally revolved around worship. And you know, an interesting thing is we tend to think that with the sacrifices of the animals and the high priest in his robes and the Urim and the Thummim and all this jewels that he had on the breastplate and all of what would appear to us even at points to be gaudy, you would assume that the Israelites, the average common person, that their uh, worship was full of symbols, kind of a symbology, type of a thing, and that that would be a message to us that we could be helped by symbols in our worship. And part of the church today is big on symbols for that reason. And they point back to this as an example. But you have to realize that really the, the common Hebrew 
saw very little symbology. In this sense, the high priest alone was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and not only once a year to see the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God in there. Only the upper end of the priesthood was allowed to go in the holy place where the incense was, the uh, menorah, the seven candlestick menorah that was burning perpetually and the table of showbread. That was in the holy place just outside the veil that separated them from the Holy of Holies. And then the other priests were the only ones to ever go in far enough to give the sacrifices. The people were always outside. And later when they built the temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, and the court of the priests, and the holy place, and the holy of holies. And the average person never got in far enough to even see all these things. So here's the amazing thing. God, who says to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, you shall not make any mark, tattoo of some God on your arms. You shall not make any images, graven images. He was saying this, I want you to worship me as an invisible God. And so to the average worshiping Hebrew, they worshiped an invisible God just about completely free from any symbols whatsoever. So when you walk into some church and it's just as gaudy as it can be and there's symbols everywhere and the person in charge says, well, the reason for all these symbols is to help us worship God, just like, you know, the children of Israel, the answer to that is, I'm sorry, pardon me. The average Hebrew person never even saw any of that stuff and they worshiped unhindered an invisible God. And the idea was you don't put him in a box and narrow him down to some little symbol. You remember when they put the, the snake on the stick and Moses held it up because the people were dying, being bit by serpents, and they miraculously began to be healed and saved from death. Well, they tried to get that thing later and worship it. Use it, not as a strange God, but as a help to worship the living God, Jehovah. Remember that? And what did they do? God said, get that thing and break it. You remember when they made the golden calf? We tend to think that they were worshiping the gods of Egypt. They made the golden calf to worship Jehovah. And that was the thing. God didn't want any kind of idols at all. And they were always reverting back to that. He didn't want any symbols to represent Him. Because He's everywhere at once. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He is so glorious. He dwells in an unapproachable light. He doesn't want to be narrowed down to some picture of Jesus. You know where one year the pictures in the Bible books are he has long hair. The next year he has a shag haircut. You know the next year he's kind of got a buzz. And he's wearing an earring. You know and a, a torn sweatshirt. And he's looking cool but he's Jesus the carpenter man. You know masculine. This kind of thing. He's not to be bound by any of that. And that's why we don't have any Polaroids of Jesus. You know, here's a picture of Jesus and the guys. He's waving. You know. Anyway. I don't know how I got on that end of it. <laughs> but as they worshipped, and they were geographically even around the tabernacle, you realize they worship an invisible God, very free from symbols, very pure. And then as you go on through the Bible and you look at worship as the ultimate priority of the Bible, you soon discover that violation of the principles of worship was very serious, very serious. For example, the golden calf incident I just mentioned, Exodus 32, thousands of people died. God killed thousands of people. In Leviticus 10, you have the ordination day of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Great day of festivities and celebration. Evidently, these guys were drunk. 
They came in, the Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord and God slew them. They died as they brought their first offering to the Lord. Moses turned to Aaron who was getting a little upset about it. He says, Aaron, don't just be quiet. Somebody else might die and it might be you. You know, so he got quiet real fast. But you understand the severity of it. And you go on through the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul acting as a priest, usurping the office of a priest, disobeying Samuel. God wrenches the kingdom from his hands because of it. 2 Samuel 6, you see they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and they've placed it on a new cart. And Uzzah, who was a Kohathite of the tribe of the Kohathites, who were trained by God to be those that would bear the Ark of the Covenant, but ever and always and only on posts. They would slide the posts through the rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant and bear, them on their, bear it on their shoulders, only touching the posts, never touching the Ark. They were forbidden to on the penalty of death. And they're going down the road. They hit a bump in the road. They've got the Ark sitting right there on the seat. And the Ark bounces and wobbles. And Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark. And God kills him on the spot. And everybody stops their singing and dancing. And it's a dreadful day in Israel. And they quick park the cart. Because they're afraid. You know, what else, who else is going to die? And probably the driver leaped off the thing, you know, and ran faster than he ever ran in his life. But the point was this. They were mishandling their worship of God. And it was severe. And then, as we move on through the Bible, we come to the time of our Lord Jesus when He came to the earth. And what is He doing? What response is He looking for from man? He's looking for the response of worship. And so he comes to really an outcast woman, broken down from sin, getting on in years after five husbands. You're getting older by now. She's desperate. She's got deep need. And he ministers to her about worship. He says in John 4, 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. You go on into Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and Paul says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. So what have we seen so far? We have seen, talking about the priority of worship, that worship is the ultimate purpose of salvation. Worship is the ultimate focus of the Bible. And let me just add one quick thought to that. Worship is the ultimate destiny you and I as believers. That's where we're going. If you're Christian today, there is something deep, deep at the very heart of your being that has come to you from across time, from out of eternity, across time, into your heart. And it's pulling at you. Every day that you live, you have good days and bad days. You fall into sin and there you are in defeat and discouraged. And it's still pulling. It's there. It pulls you back to your feet. It pulls you back down to your knees. It pulls you in your heart out again and worship to God and gets you right with God. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit of God Himself, the eternal Spirit of God, who's come to dwell within you. And He is calling to you, pulling from within you, pulling you toward that ultimate destiny, which is to worship God in His full blazing glory forever. You know, as we were worshiping here before the message, the last one of the last songs, I was standing off on the side, and we were all standing. And I just thought about the day, the days when we will stand before the throne of God, 
And the Bible says that the sound of the worship of the saints is like the thunder of many waterfalls. It's a roar. If you've ever stood by a big waterfall, it is a deafening roar. And I, my heart was just drawn out to God, and I spoke to the Lord. I just can't wait, God. You know, there's something about getting older, something about more pains in your body, something about all of that that God uses to draw out your heart. But above and beyond all of that, deeper than all of that, is this drawing of the Holy Spirit toward our eternal destiny, which is to worship God in full blazing glory forever. Worship is the ultimate eternal destiny of believers. So we understand the right perception and the priority of worship. Let's go then and just talk for a few minutes about the practice of God-centered worship. If you could go back to John 4, to verse 23. John 4, verse 23. Jesus says, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Here he says, in truth. This is one of the basic elements of Christian worship. What does this mean? Think about all that goes on in the name of worship in the church today. Everything from a good old-fashioned Jericho march to the sound of a blazing, blasting, old-fashioned organ where people run around the aisles literally in a church to swinging from chandeliers to what they now call holy laughter rolling in the aisles. I mean, just think of all that goes on in the name of worship. And then come again to this verse. The Bible says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What that means is that our expression of worship is to follow along and be in sync with and go no further than the revelation God has given us in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, I don't want any part of it. If it's not in the Bible, I don't need it. If it's not in the Bible, I haven't even plumbed the depths of the knowledge of God and what is revealed to me in the Bible so far. I don't need any new revelation. I don't need any new vision from so-called prophets from some Midwest city. I don't need anything like that. I need to worship in truth, according to the truth. And then I need to worship in spirit. He said, God is spirit. Those who worship Him, notice, must must, if it's to be acceptable, it must be in spirit as well as according to the truth, in truth. So we come from the depths of our spirit. This here is not the Holy Spirit, it's your spirit. You come worshiping God from your spirit, from the inside of you. We're drawn out to Him as a word in blessed adoration from the very center of our being. Filled with the knowledge of God, His goodness, His majesty, as the psalmist, my heart is boiling over as I contemplate God. Filled with the contemplation of God from His Word, the truth, as it reveals Him. And we come, and with the psalmist in Psalm 47, verse 7, he says, Sing ye praises with, what? Understanding, understanding of the truth. And you bring the two together, and what you end up with is often a very emotional experience. And that is a good thing. And that is a wonderful thing. And yet it needs to be tempered by truth. So where is the balance? The balance is in this. Being free to express your emotion to God, to lift your hands, to bellow out your... Please, some of you don't bellow too loud. But those of you that sing well, bellow, please. But you can bellow out, all of us together, 
As long as we're in the, within the parameters of truth, it's blessed and accepted by God. And often that can be a very emotional thing. It is not uncommon to see people weep during the worship because it's a wonderful thing. Your, your heart is being touched by the love of God. There's nothing beyond that. You were created for it. There's an experience often of emotion, and we need to understand that and thank God for it. Warren Wearsby, in his book called Real Worship, had some great words to say on this. I want to share them with you. He said, The important thing is that we keep the right balance. There is today such an emphasis on Bible knowledge that we are in danger of ignoring or even opposing personal spiritual experience. We must not base our theology on experience, neither must we debase our theology by divorcing it from experience. If true worship is the response of the whole person to God, then we dare not neglect the emotions. We permit people to express their emotions at weddings and funerals and athletic events, but sometimes not at a worship service. The important thing today seems to be that you mark your Bibles and write outlines in your notebook. Now, don't you stop doing that just because Wearsby mentioned it. I'm telling you it's a good thing. It is important. So is he. He, says, he goes on to say, but whatever else you do, keep your emotions hidden. He says there must be a balance, if I can interject, between writing down the knowledge, and there should be enough knowledge in the message that there's something worth writing down. There must be a balance. See how I recovered that? There must be a balance between that and expressing your emotions. Whatever else you do. This attitude, he goes on to say, I'm sure is an overreaction to some of the extremes that Christians have seen in certain segments of the modern charismatic movement. He said, while I personally deplore religious emotionalism as opposed to true emotion, I must admit that I tend to agree with Bishop Handley Moole, who said that he would rather tone down a fanatic than resurrect a corpse. He goes on to say it would be better not to have either extreme, of course, but if I have my choice, give me a fanatic. Yes, a fanatic for God who can be tempered down with the truth, who can sing praises with understanding and express emotion with understanding and do it within the parameters of the Bible. And yes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, do it with self-control. So you have none of this talk. I couldn't help myself. My legs started to kicking and I started to running. Oh, get off it. One of the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So don't give me that stuff. But often worship is, is a blessed, deep, rich, emotional experience. And we need to feel free to let that out in spirit and truth. And often, this is the last thing I want to mention, it is an experience of liberation. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon who said, He whose soul does not worship shall never live in holiness. He whose soul does not worship shall never live in holiness. How about you today? You wondering where all the holiness went in your life? I suggest it was crowded out when you pushed God off the throne and you stopped worshiping Him and started worshiping yourself in some way, your own desires, and suddenly the holiness was gone because it went with the worship. You see where you have an adoring, worshiping heart focused on one thing, that's God. The holiness naturally follows 
process of worshiping in spirit and in truth were liberated and changed by the Spirit of God. Don't forget who Jesus is talking to. He is talking to a desperate, immoral, frustrated, empty woman at a well in Samaria. And this is the solution he is giving to her entire life. William Temple said years ago, listen to this, for both for perplexity and for dulled conscience, the remedy is the same. Sincere and spiritual worship. For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. It is the nourishing of the mind with His truth. It is the purifying of the imagination by His beauty. It is the opening of the heart to His love. And it is the surrender of the will to His purpose. And all of this is gathered up then and expressed in adoration which is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. Therefore, worship is the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Yes, worship in spirit and truth is the way to the solution of perplexity and to the liberation from sin. Why? Because you were created to worship God. And when you do that, you are so lined up with your Maker, so fused with His power and His life, that your life becomes what He meant it to be from the very beginning. Divine worship has always been the occupation, the priority, the sustenance of the believing soul. Augustine put it so well when he said, Thou hast formed us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Thee. And years and years ago, the shorter catechism of days gone by asked the ancient question of what and why of man's existence and then came up with the answer in one short statement hardly matched in anything in writing outside of Scripture. The what and why of man's existence. Here's the question. What is the chief end of man? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus said to a sinful woman who needed help and wanted direction and wanted a new life, the hour has come and now is when men will worship God. True worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He seeks you this day. Will you respond in a worshiping heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of worship. And really, Father, for the new life within us in Jesus Christ that spawns that worship. Thank you, Father, for your life and our souls that, Holy Spirit, you have, in wonder of all wonders, chosen to make our bodies the temple that you would dwell in. Oh, God, remind us that you live within us and that you have come so near to us that we might more intimately and fully worship you. May we do it in spirit, and may we do it in truth. And God, may we spend more of our time preoccupied with you in the days to come, bathing in your glory and enjoying your life on our souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.